Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Histories of the Unexpected, the show in which we demonstrate that everything, simply everything you can possibly think of, has its own history, like geese, treats, and speaking truth to power. Ooh, speaking truth to power. Now there's a subject. (laughs) (laughs) How on earth did we come up with that one? I have no idea. We could also do pigs, wigs, and oil rigs. Figs, digs and swigs. I think swigs is a sort of festive one. It's the history of drinking. I'm not sure whether we've done the mm. history of drinking, have we, Sam? Yeah, we've done, well, we've done various drinks, but the, the method of drinking, swigging, Ooh, is, uh, swigging, is really good because it's all to do with uh, politeness and, um, yeah, yes, and um, a table manners, I suspect. Ooh, swigging uh, in yeah. the burp, maybe, as a pair. That would be excellent. Mm-hmm. Very good. Yeah, excellent. Excellent. Yeah. Um, For the moment, however, we'll be following the links in our minds as we come across them, explaining how those histories link together in unexpected ways. Who knew, for example, who knew that the history of idiots, yes, it does have a history, uh, is all about the current disarray in British politics, the kamikaze budget of yesteryear, the concept of the useful idiot or person who is duped into acting for a cause without properly knowing what they're doing, a la the Tory party in the UK via... Vladimir Lenin. Uh, It's also all about the incredibly important field of disability history and the idea of the disabled mind and the curious case of Miss Fanny Fust. Uh, The history of the dunce, it's also about that, and childhood teasing. Who knew? Or who knew that the history of fame, the history of fame, is in fact all about the phenomenon of celebrity, the changed fortunes of the famous from ancient Rome through P.T. Barnum to the Beatles and Elvis and the rise of boy bands. It's also all about the fall from power, as in the cases of Sir Walter Raleigh and Mussolini, as well as recycling in ancient Rome and the erasure of political has-beens from the face of the imperial city. That was a chapter in our book on the Romans, Sam, I think, on recycling. Absolutely. Who knew? Yes. Fascinating stuff. Uh, let me say of my fellow presenter um, that he is the... But I mustn't mumble, but be eloquent and enunciate. He is the master of pithy, punctuated, provocative and praiseworthy parlance. He is professor of... Ex- Professor of Extraordinary History at the University of Plymouth. He is James Daybell. Hello, James. Thank you, Sam. Hello. Hello. That was excellent. Uh, I was actually going to just mumble the entire episode, but then thought that people wouldn't really want to listen to that. So you may well be wondering, who is that unattributed voice so ably helping Daybell co-pilot this very episode? Well, let's just say that if he were a mumbling-related historian, he'd only be the Rocky Balboa of the historical world, the world champion fighter for historical 
historical truth. He spent a lifetime doggedly training in the archives, running up and down the steps of the past, eating facts as if they were all raw eggs, all to the end of being the undefeated champion of history and to mumble those immortal lines, Adrian! <laughs> or for those more of a more historical bent, history! Yes, you've guessed it. It's the famous historical adventurer, Dr. Sam Willis. Did you like that? I thought wow. that was quite good. It was very good. Um, mumbling, guys. We're doing the history of mumbling. Um, I can't remember why we're doing this. I think it might have just been one of your list of things that we could theoretically do, James. Yes. And I, I jumped upon it and said, oh, let's do that. You were absolutely right to do so. But I must admit that this was one that I found incredibly difficult to find the history of. It really did. And, and I, thought, I suppose that is, that's at the root of what Histories of the Unexpected is and the root of the concept in the beginning. It was like the idea that you can take any topic and try and think of a history for it try and uncover mm. a history and i found this really difficult to do really yeah. you know how do we how do we even define <laughs> how do we even define mumbling how do you historicize it how do you conceptualize it is it to is it to do with a speech defect and that gets you into a sort of the history of elocution or stuttering or stammering is it an inability to articulate oneself is it is it psychological so is it a lack of confidence that leads one to be less forthcoming is it is it something that can manifest itself in different historical practices so for example silent chanting mumbling to oneself as in the sense of a prayer or incantation is it an emotional thing about being upset and mumbling to oneself oh, nobody loves me is it a school child mumbling <laughs> under their breath you know swearing Ooh. at a you're in a meeting or you're you know a teacher is ticking you off and you're going <laughs> in the background so how does one reconstruct <laughs> the history of mumbling i the, the first thing that came to my mind is is um was shakespeare's macbeth and the gatekeeper. Right. So it's after they've all been carousing and the gatekeeper sort of wakes up, no, 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 in the middle of the night, sort of with a screaming hangover. Um, and that's a sort of an example of mumbling in, mumbling in Shakespearean theatre. So uh. it's, it's, it's difficult, isn't it, to sort of get at it. How did you attack it? Um, I w had been watching a programme about speaking in tongues mm, and mm. Uh, that's not exactly mumbling but it's kind of nonsensical word speak nonsensical speech so I thought that that was one way of looking at it I was also following the US midterm elections and Ooh, yes um, and it was been greatly interested in uh, the aging politicians that the Americans have and particularly Biden who is uh, he's a great mumbler as was Trump as well um, but that you know it's not uh, too rare that Biden comes along and says something which is pretty uh, incomprehensible. And I thought that there must have been a history of well-known politicians who were surprisingly bad at public speaking. And, and unsurprisingly, there is, and it does go back all the way to ancient Rome. So not everyone was Cicero. Um, and actually, uh, you know, having prominent figures not being able to speak properly is uh, has, has its own interesting history. Um, I ended up thinking about how I came across mumbling in my day-to-day -day life, or certainly the, since I've been brought up, and it made me think of my mum, who talks to herself, um, mm. in a, not, not in a kind of a cracker's way, but in, she just sort of, you know, she just sort of chunks along and does, does mutter, and it, you can't quite hear what she's saying, and it is definitely mumbling, right? Mm. Um, 
And so uh, I ended up looking at uh, self, the history of talking to yourself, the history oh, of self-talk, nice. Nice. which which um, has actually become very interesting. And, and it's linked to the history of hearing voices, uh, which I, I ended up um, looking into. Let me start a little bit about that, James. Yeah, do. That, that. that sounds fascinating, um, Sam. Hearing voices, um, there's actually some really fascinating research going on at the University of Durham, and they've got an amazing project called Hearing the Voice. Now, the principle behind this, right, is that for years it has been believed that if people hear voice, that there's something psychiatrically wrong with you, there's something medically uh, medically wrong with you. Um, and th- there have been all sorts of attempts at trying to explain how and why people hear voices. And one of the explanations is that the person who's heard the voices pr- produced some form of inner speech, but for some reason they haven't recognised it as their own work. So their body will hear what they've said, but they won't acknowledge that they've actually said it. Hmm. Um, it's like they've kind of done the thing, but haven't sort of stood up and said, actually, this is, this is speech that I've produced. Um, and as a result of that, it gets it gets perceived as an external voice. But that's only one uh, kind of explanation of it. And I can certainly imagine that happening to my mum, who does spend a lot of her time talking to herself. Actually, my wife started doing it as well, uh, which is slightly worrying. Um, but um, it, it's the the link with the um, psychiatric disorders thing, which is interesting. And actually, hearing the voices does go with a lot of different diagnoses of psychiatric disorders. However, there is a very um, important minority of people who hear voices, but aren't mentally ill. And um, they have uh, got together over the last few years and, and set up something called the Hearing Voices Movement, which which rejects the standard uh, medical view of hearing voices being the fault of the brain, uh, i.e. James, something that needs mm. to be fixed. And actually they see it as a rich, a, a varied experience, something that has a personal meaning to a lot of people. Fascinating stuff. So um, these brilliant people at Durham have gone back and said, oh, this is this is good. This is good stuff. Um, so they've set up the Hearing the Voice Project, which have looked has looked at people hearing voices is in the past and it's fantastic uh, it's one of the most interesting things that i've come across and um what's wonderful about it is the i think the hidden stories that come up about people who were um uh, suffering from psychiatric problems and also not suffering from psychiatric problems but you do just get little stories um and it just kind of links you with people in the past as a, a lovely one august 1914 eliza bowles 18 year old from houghton le spring i don't know where that is um oh it's up in durham so she's committed to winterton hospital um and she's uh she's muttering she's mumbling she's hearing voices she's described as a moderate grade imbecile um and is restless continually crying um the voices she was hearing were calling her names she also had epileptic fits uh, became more frequent over time and she died from pneumonia in the hospital just one year later so uh, a very kind of moving tale of of suffering uh, essentially there um there's a, a a really fascinating person as well a guy called daniel paul schreiber he was a, a jurist and he, um, this is in Leipzig, right? So he's admitted to a clinic in 1884. So he's a very bright guy and he's, he's a talented writer. And he uh, suffers from psychosis. This is before psychosis has actually been um, described or, or medically analysed. But he writes all about 
what's going on to him. And he wrote a book called Memoirs of My Nervous Illness. Um, and it's, it is absolutely fascinating. It's actually become one of the most uh, quoted and interpreted psychiatric texts ever published. So the key thing about it is it's not, of course, written by a psychiatrist. It's written by a patient. Um, and I just thought I'd read you a little bit out of this because uh, it, it does mention him hearing voices um, and, and him also reproducing the sound of the voices. I could not get to sleep. A recurrent crackling noise in the wall of our bedroom became noticeable at shorter or longer intervals. Time and again it woke me as I was about to go to sleep. Naturally, we thought of a mouse, although it was very extraordinary that a mouse should have found its way to the first floor of such a solidly built house. But having heard similar noises innumerable times since then and still hearing them around me every day in daytime and at night, I've come to recognise them as undoubted divine miracles. They are called interferences by the voices talking to me, and I must at least suspect, without being too definite about it, that even then it was already a matter of such a miracle. In other words, that right from the beginning the more or less definite intention existed to prevent my sleep and later my recovery from the illness, resulting from the insomnia, for a purpose which cannot at this stage be further specified. Um, and you can see how uh, this actually laid the foundations for the understanding of paranoia. And one uh, step here, uh, one quote here. But with regard to the efforts to unman me, it was soon found that the gradual filling of my body with nerves of voluptuousness, female nerves, had exactly the reverse effect because the resulting so-called soul voluptuousness in my body rather increased the power of attraction. Therefore, scorpions were repeatedly put into my head, tiny crab or spider-like structures which were to carry out some work of destruction in my head. These had the the nature of souls and therefore were talking beings they were distinguished according to their place of origin as arian and catholic scorpions the former somewhat bigger and stronger however these scorpions regularly withdrew from my head without doing me harm when they perceived the purity of my nerves and the holiness of my purpose <laughs> wow so uh, there we go um and those are just uh, just some examples of it and one of the interesting people who um who who does kind of appear on the fringes of this idea of people hearing voices and reproducing it is charles dickens uh, which i thought was quite extraordinary so um he wrote about how he saw his stories rather than invented them. They were all kind of pre-formed and that he heard his characters speak, that they were with him when he was actually writing. So he was visualising all of these characters. They were there like an actor in a room speaking to him and he basically recreated what they said. Um, and by the end of the, his career, Dickens unsurprising I think with this kind of talent and huge amounts of money giving public talks where he would basically become um, one of these one of these characters or several of the characters in his books which I thought uh, was fascinating so um, peripheral linky ways James of thinking about mumbling thinking about muttering to yourself and the links it has with hearing voices Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old fashioned litter. 
That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Oh, I love that, Sam. That's fantastic. Um, just th- thinking about that, I mean, one of the interesting things about that Hearing the Voice project at Durham is that this isn't simply history, but it shows you how history can be really interdisciplinary to study a a phenomenon like voice hearing and what you've got there is a whole team of international researchers including including historians but also people from linguistics literary studies medical humanities philosophy psychology theology anthropology cognitive neuroscience it says and they're working closely with clinicians voice hearers and other experts funded by the Wellcome Trust who fund uh, work into medical history. Uh, and other sort of, you know, really interesting stuff. So it, it's really interesting the way in which history operates like that. I mean, this this idea of hearing voices, there's a, there's a network, uh, the Hearing Voices Network in the US that claims, this is extraordinary, claims that about 3 to 10% of the population in the United States have experience of hearing voices. And they, they argue that this increases to about 75% if you include one-off experiences like hearing someone call your name out loud. Does that mean uh, somebody literally calls your name out loud or or you hear uh, you know a sort of disembodied voice calling your name out loud? I, I don't know. <laughs> I think that one of the interesting things about that also is the way in which it might connect to people who have had visions, or mystics. There's a whole sort of long... Um, and fascinating history about people who have been channels for divine voices. I think here of somebody uh, like Elizabeth Barton, the Holy Maid of London or the Holy Maid of Kent, the Nun of Kent, um, who got caught up in Henry VIII's Reformation, um, his divorce from Catherine of Aragon, uh, the the marriage to Anne Boleyn, and basically prophesies, uh, says that she's hearing voices, she's hearing visions, and prophesies that um, if Henry remarried, uh, he would die within a few months, um, and you know, and he would you know descend into hell. Um, th- this leads to a sort of whole scandal at court. Um, a number of people associated with her you know are, are imprisoned uh, she herself is is executed but it's somebody who you know who basically you know had uh, these visions uh from the past uh, and probably was was sort of suffered from you know deep mental mental illness i didn't want to go in that direction at all though i was thinking my starting point for it was starting to think about definitions of it having gone from macbeth and to think about what what it 
what it means, the meaning of it. So to start with the sort of the, the nomenclature, the vocabulary, and what it means to utter words in a low, confused, indistinct manner. So it is, it's muttering utter in a low inarticulate voice it's also it, it also is related to um in the um in the medieval period in middle english it also means to talk with your mouthful um and so you know that idea that you're you know you're mumbling as you're sort of as you're eating so it's it's about having being unable to articulate oneself like that and there was some really fascinating work that I read um, thinking about the about whether mumbling is a sign of laziness um, mm. and you know so whether people were you know were mumbling through things because they couldn't be bothered to um, you know articulate things in full and if you think about the the way in which you shorten everyday speech you know you might um so take for example you know if somebody asks you how you are uh you just say fine rather than say actually i'm really fine today so that idea that basically it's a clever data compression trick really so you you just sort of mumble fine rather than sort of using a, a much broader uh, longer sentence and i think this has really interesting um associations across time um across um across different different countries and different cultures and it's also related to the ways in which language works. So a lot of it can be associated with dialect. Um, and you know, if you look at the way, you go back to Shakespeare, if you look at the way in which lower-born characters or rustics are presented there, you know, often it is in very sort of colloquial forms and people run... Um, they run words together so they're almost like they're mumbling i don't know whether you watch jeremy clarkson's farm show uh, at the moment uh, on amazon prime this is not a plug uh, for jeremy clarkson <laughs> at all but it is an it's extraordinarily funny and there is a character i think it's i think it's gerald gerald is this guy who basically has sort of grown up on a farm all his life and one of the comic things about him or one of the way comic things that the show is playing with him is just you literally you literally can't understand a word he says. So Jeremy and Jeremy Clarkson is really good at playing a sort of straight face uh, with him as Gerald sort of in the road of field. Um, it's a bit like that character from the Fast Show, you know, the Paul Whitehouse yeah. character. So I, so I think there's a real there's a really interesting history here. Um, if you think about the language in the you know southern southern american states of the united states the sort of the drawl that people that people have that is associated with with that part of the of the country um then also think about the the complexity of language that people have and and think for example about the color vocabularies across languages and there was some really interesting work that i did that I that I read here, looking at the the Lele language spoken by people in in Chad. Um, and basically, what you have is 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 a single word to encompass three main colours: yellow, green, and blue. And if you look at pre-industrial societies, languages have minimalist 
colour vocabularies. Because if you think about it, it's not until we get the rise of... Uh, trade, um, the, the kind of wealth of colours that are sort of being uh, imported from around the world um, and the production of materials, things aren't sort of bright and beautifully coloured. And so you don't need the kind of depth of language to be able to to describe that. So there we are, Sam. There's a little bit of sort of how we might, you know, think about uh, mumbling uh, from a linguistic historical perspective. Yeah, I came across this as well, and I like the idea of laziness. And actually, I wonder whether laziness is one of the influences on changing language. And through all this, I came across um, the history of the great vowel shift, which helps explain a great deal about the curious spellings of English. So the principles here is that let's link it to mumbling. So the idea is, are you actually mumbling or have you actually changed the way you speak? Mm. And have you done that on purpose or have you done that as a, a sort of a subconsciously as a big result of cultural societal um, influences? So the great vowel shift is is a massive change in the way that English is pronunciated um, b- between fourteen hundred and seventeen hundred, um, and uh, it, it, actually the the whole name of the great vowel shift has itself a history. This is it was first studied and identified by a linguist called Otto Jespersen, who was a Danish guy working from in, in around the eighteen nineties, early nineteen hundreds. So the principle behind this is that from around thirteen hundred, the long vowels of Middle English change, and it changes over several centuries. So from about fourteen hundred to nineteen hundred, and you can look at it with, with various examples. So this is the word bite, right? So you you bite a a a, uh, a piece of bread, for example. So around fourteen hundred, that would have had a long vowel. It would have been beat, right? Fifteen hundred, it would have changed to bait. 1600 it gets shorter bait and then 1900 it's bite so you've got beat bait bait and bite um and then out very similar so that would have started off around 1400 as oot and then oat and then out and then out um the, the changes there from 1400 to 1900 uh, boot is a similar one so that would have been boat boot and then boot uh, boat, <laughs> you've got to bear with me here, bought, bought, and then boat. So um, what's really interesting about this, James, is that not only did the pronunciation change, but uh, it doesn't change across the board. So there are some which don't change at all. And in modern English, you've got words like swear. So you've got this E in the A, swear. Father, you've got a lovely long A on the father. And room, where you have the long oo on oom, uh, which is, uh, I think, fascinating. Um, and you've also got these uh, weird examples of pronunciation that um, leads to strange spellings existing. So words like enough, so E-N-O-U-G-H in English, is pronounced enough now, but it would have had a, a kind of a guttural um, sound at the end, like loch we have now. Mm. Um, and night, would have, you would have said the K, you said a knight. Um, uh, which is different. So not only have you got this vowel change, you've got other sort of pronunciation chains. Now, trying to explain it is really interesting. Um, 
And one of the explanations which I like, so I know lots of various ones about uh, migration, social mobility, the influence of the French aristocracy. Um, but I love this one, people identifying it specifically to what happened in 1476 when you got this chap called William Caxton who introduces the first mechanised printing press. OK, you probably know a little bit about James. Yeah, a little but, bit. But uh, it basically allows... Um, the mass publication of written works. Now, at the time this was happening, you've got it's in the middle of this pronunciation change. But what printers are doing, they're still using the spellings that had been previously established over very many years. So the theory goes that by the time that all the various dialects and pronunciation has settled by the 17th century, the sheer number of books already in in circulation, which have got the pre-change spellings, was too big a hurdle to overcome. So they remained. Um, Fascinating bit of history there. So all to do with the change in pronunciation and whether, in fact, you are mumbling or you're just talking in a new way. Oh, the printing press. We should do the printing press and revolution. Um, World revolution. I wanted to... I promised in the last episode that I would talk a little bit about mumble rap. Those of you who are long-term listeners of Histories of the Unexpected will know that I am a big fan of hip-hop and rap. Uh, Extraordinary for an almost 50-year-old professor, I know. Um, Some habits die very hard. Um, But mumble rap is a a phenomenon uh, that's been around for for a while. Um, And it is a, a phenomenon where... Um, rappers will mumble their words together. It does what it says on the tin. And certain people are absolutely up in arms. Those of you who like your really clever, um, you know, heavy bass like Chuck D or, um, you know, somebody like Ice Cube, NWA, um, or something like the sort of, you know, the smooth flow of somebody like Jay-Z, and all number of sort of, uh, you know, more modern um, uh, artists, you know, think that this is basically the death of hip-hop. But it's really interesting where where it came from, this idea of mumbling the lyrics together in an incoherent manner. Uh, it tends to come from developed in the South um, and then it spreads to places like New York and Chicago where it, it takes off. And it's really here to stay. And if you look at the way in which it has come about, um, it has developed partly in the South because of the sort of the drawl of, you know, the southern states that I was talking about earlier on. But also the if you look at some of the lyrics in the... Um, in the albums from the sort of late 90s onwards they are referencing a a drug called lean uh, which becomes quite popular in that culture and lean is a really weird kind of codeine cocktail I had never heard of this before but basically it's homemade it's also known as purple drank Syrup, dirty sprite, and others, and basically it involves um, taking soda, so in other words, fizzy drinks, mixing it with codeine, cough syrup, hard candy, alcohol, antihistamine, yeah, all sorts of stuff. So it's really sort of odd. The impact that this has is, of course, it makes you slur your speech and causes you to be, you know, to mumble uh, when you're when you're rapping. Uh, if you are interested in in the sort of famous uh, mumble rappers, uh, here is a here's a list for you: uh, Fetty Wap, Designer, Lil Uzi Vert, uh, Lil Yakti, and Chief Keef. 
Um, those are some some examples. So I I suggest you go to your um, download provider of music and Google them up uh, and listen to them. So and from mumble rap into mumbling in films, uh, and I I when I was stuck on what to what to think of about um, mumbling, I had a chat with my my wife and she she said right i love doing research for histories of the unexpected she disappeared upstairs uh and and did all sorts of um you know interesting research for me and one of the things that she came across was um this article that looks at 13 amazingly incoherent performances in tv and film and you will recognize it this is why i this is why i i name checked you with uh, rocky balboa because i think that is one of the you know one of the sort of um you know one of the sort of quintessential uh films with an actor playing a, a boxer who I'm, I'm not good at doing impressions as you can see but these performances are given in these sort of mumbling ways. So number one, uh, Tom Hardy in The Dark Knight Rises plays the character Bane, uh, almost in, incomprehensible. People can't hear hear it. Have you ever seen True Detective, the first um, the yeah. first series with Matthew McConaughey? Yeah. Rust Cole yeah, uh, in that HBO drama. Um, uh, Arthur Webley um, in Hot Fuzz. Um, uh, Vito Corleone in 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 uh by Marlon Brando in The Godfather hey trust me love me the family <laughs> you know it's extraordinary uh, so, and so it goes on parades end has them um it, the the um in the film snatch Brad Pitt's Mickey O'Neill uh for example Ennis Del Mar uh, played by Heath Ledger in Brokeback Mountain uh, and so we go on and on and on and of course who could forget um Roly Birkin QC uh Paul Whitehouse in The Fast Show um, a brilliant sort of uh, example of of mumbling. Uh, I suppose what you've got there is a history of mumbling that is in the cinema, in the TV, that is played for comedic comedic effect, but also for dramatic effect. That that really sort of gets under the skin of people from a particular part of the world. So there we are. We've sort of mumbled our way through the history of mumbling, Sam. Uh, well done, us. <laughs> yeah, wonderful. Really, really enjoyable. It felt like a classic Histories of the Unexpected episode. And we'll be back again with you soon uh, for some more Histories of the Unexpected. Do please follow me on social media. I'm at Dr. Sam Willis. And if you're interested in maritime and naval history, the history of the sea, please listen to my other podcast, the Mariner's Mirror podcast. And if you'd like to follow me on Twitter, I'm on the handle at James Daybell. Uh, the podcast is on at Unexpected Pod. We are also on Instagram and Facebook, so come and find us there. Check out our website. It's coming up to Christmas and we have signed copies of our books, our series, small series books on the Romans, the Vikings, Tudors and World War II. Also, our big copies of hardback books as well um if you'd like to support us head over to patreon.com and you can check out our page there well thank you all for listening and hope you're all well and and warm in the these cold uh these getting colder uh days and not having to put the heating on too much wherever you are in the world all right cheerio guys thank you very much for listening bye bye bye
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.